Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Potogotoma and I started 10 by 9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast and we love it. It's been a busy couple of weeks for 10 by 9 and of course you can probably hear my voice. What should happen in the middle of it all? I came down with COVID. Minor dose, almost out of the woods, hoping today will bring a negative test result. Anyway, we were back in the black box for true stories on the theme Reality in partnership with the Amiden Festival on March 23rd. Luckily, Podig was around to take control while I listened to the recordings later at home. There are three amazing stories from that evening on this podcast. I now realise just how much danger I was in at that time in general and during those couple of days in particular. I decided to compare him to a beautiful swan. (laughs) I know, I know. I suck in my belly, pull back my shoulders and straighten up. It's vanity, not lust. And just to add, the three stories are from first-timers, brilliant first-timers, as you'll hear. And first up, here's Ian Walsh, who kicked off the evening. I'm Ian. I'm a surgeon. I'm an academic. A musician, a writer, a father, a husband, a son. Addicted to alcohol from the start of my life and for what's left of the rest of it. This narrative describes some of my experience in the last days of my solo drinking at home period, derived from my book, The Belly of the Whale. Flagrant pitch there. These days blended almost seamlessly into each other. And there was an overall plan of action to consume enough alcohol to function. And by this stage, functioning meant moving from one room to another, usually to consume more alcohol. The time of day ceased to have any real meaning. And if I managed to get up myself seated comfortably in front of the television in the kitchen with vodka close at hand, I was doing well. Eating was a major achievement, which usually didn't occur. Fluid intake was largely in the form of the water slurped unceremoniously from the kitchen tap to wash and help keep down each swig of vodka. The kitchen sink had the additional function as a urinary receptacle with a built-in flush rinse mechanism, a toilet, yet still a sink, clever. At one stage, I was more or less trapped upstairs for a couple of days. I was stuck in my daughter's, understandably, vacated bedroom and only managed to crawl to the adjoining bathroom every once in a while to voraciously drink directly from the tap. No matter how copiously I drank, I was thirsty again within moments, which reflected my severe dehydration. The stairs filled me with terror. I was aware that my balance and sense of position were completely shot. I was also anxious in the extreme because of alcohol withdrawal. I thought I had some more alcohol downstairs, but simply couldn't bring myself anywhere close to the stairs to get to it. I envisioned myself slowly creeping downstairs in the seated position, gripping the banister rails, but I couldn't move this plan into action because every time I approached within a few feet of the stair edge, I'd be consumed by fear. Falling was a very distinct risk with my advanced lack of coordination, so perhaps some part of me was keeping me safe to some extent. I now realise just how much danger I was in at that time in general, and during those couple of days in particular. Eventually, my anxiety lifted sufficiently and the balance improved enough to allow me to painstakingly crawl down to the ground floor 
where it took mere seconds for me to locate my nearest bottle. <coughs> if that hadn't been immediately to hand, there were alternatives. Any port in a storm, if the pun can be excused. I'd learnt how to drink aftershave by trial and error. The driving reason underlying the first time was that I was worried that I was going to suffer dangerous withdrawal when I'd suddenly run out of available booze one stark 4am. So while this was an, an attempt to stave off an unpleasant, frightening and potentially harmful experience, I'm also sure that I just wanted to get or simply be drunk or drunker. When I tried to drink the aftershave neat, I gagged and I retched immediately. I then diluted it with fruit juice and I sipped it. Holding it down was still difficult, but then I had to wait for it to take effect. With profound relief, it seemed to work, and it certainly got me through this particular dire strait, until I got my hand and got it on some proper alcohol artist. A practical point I learnt was how it was so much easier to be able to pour aftershave from a bottle into a glass, avoiding the intense frustration of repeatedly spraying minute aliquots from an atomizer and a suitable receptacle prior to consumption. I would suggest selecting the appropriate bottles for deployment first. Also ensure, ensure that your consumption is undertaken over a sink. Vomiting is to be expected, and a big receptacle in immediate proximity is both pragmatic and de rigueur to receive and contain the uh, effluent. I was later to deploy other substitutes for proper alcohol under similarly trying circumstances, and most commonly this was during hospital incarceration settings. These substances of substitution uh, included hand washing gel, mouthwash, women's perfume, and injection swabs. Any dream will do, as they say. Meanwhile, my skin essentially gave up the ghost. It departed my body. It shed itself in quantities I wouldn't have believed was humanly possible. I had psoriasis then, and that could impart a redness to my skin, which often misleadingly suggested health. I described this as a wine tan. Psoriasis also makes your skin somewhat flaky, and it goes into absolute overdrive with alcohol. And I'm not exaggerating the slightest to state that most of the downstairs living area of my home was covered in my skin squames and fragments. It probably smelt too, as anything connected with me did by this stage. Even my blood smelt. Flakiness abounded, as if the Sandman from the Spider-Man 3 movie had recently vacated the place. I was blithely going bankrupt at this stage, and my family had to sweep the floors free of this fine dermatological detritus to allow potential buyers of the house to view it. A thankless task. My skin had further insult to endure. I now carry a permanent scar in the back of my right shoulder. In keeping with a stab wound, and I could play upon this should the need for opportunity to impress arise. But the truth is, the scar doesn't reflect a manly knife injury, however. It's the visible evidence of me lying in an inebriated coma in or on my son's, understandably, vacated bed in such an insensate state that I couldn't feel the heat of the radiator which against I lay. I did become aware of the presence of the radiator when I tried to roll away from it, discovering that I couldn't. I was stuck to it by virtue of my melted skin. But it's somewhat disgusting to consider my soft skin fusing with the hard metal. It's quite insignificant compared to the other bodily degradations which were going on at that time. Scar is a bit cool, though. Just a bit. The movie and book, Leaving Las Vegas, were running intermittently through my head throughout this period. 
and I've visited the movie, movie warily since, and it really is an accurate reflection in both detail and principle with its theme and sense of destruction. Simply put, I was trying to die. It was a cowardly way to do so, but it was the only realistic way I knew, and it could be done without really thinking. I was good at this, and I reckon that I'd been preparing for it for quite some time. It was acceptable in its way, and I felt that it had some degree of meaning at that time. There was method in the madness, and it was certainly beyond my control, not beyond my blame or responsibility, but certainly beyond my control. I should be horrified by much of the detail of this as a tell-up, but I'm not really. I'm certainly impressed by my perseverance, which subsequently played a major part in getting me into, through, and established in recovery. I now see how very ill I was at the time. I now know how ill I continue to be. But at least nowadays I can manage this illness, and I didn't have a chance to at that stage. In fact, I didn't have a chance from way before this period, and that's the nature of it. If you have this disease, you don't stand a chance against it. The curious and counterintuitive fact is that you have to surrender to it in order to be able to manage it. You never conquer, win against it or beat it, but it can be managed. Part of me would like to witness myself in that time, to see myself moving around, listen to myself, smell myself. I'm sure the curiosity would soon turn to disgust or I may just feel sorrow and pity. I just don't know. However, one thing I do know is that I certainly wouldn't want to be back there in person. And I definitely wouldn't recommend the experience to anyone on this or any other planet. Ian, thanks so much for such searing honesty and harsh reality. What a great start to the 10 by 9 event. Later, Ian got in touch to say how much he enjoyed himself describing 10 by 9 as enjoyable, enlightening and transformative and promising to return to the 10 by 9 mic soon. Remember, if you have a story for 10 by 9 or you want to know more about what we do, check out our website, 10by9.com. There's plenty of info there, including all our dates for 2022 and a few other bits and pieces. Okay, next with the reality story making her 10 by 9 debut, it's Deborah McCune. So it's December 2019 and I'm 37 and a mother to a wonderful child and I'm married with a secure job, a beautiful home and a dog with the sweetest soul. It sounds like my life plan was working out well. The thing is, my husband was no longer living with me and the happy family unit I strived and longed for was no longer my reality. After a year of being single, I felt it was time to try my hand at dating again. I cast my eyes not too far away by looking for potential dates in my gym. This is lazy granted, but I was very out of touch and practice with dating rituals. My eye settled on a man who, for the purpose of this story, shall be called John. I basically knew absolutely nothing about John, other than I suspected he was single, and I found him very attractive. So yes, I suppose you could say my attributes are lazy and shallow. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I needed to make efforts to speak with him more, um, but I didn't feel brave enough to approach him in person. Um, so I settled for the next best thing, uh, I sent John an Instagram friend request. I checked Instagram daily for two weeks, all the while cringing, but at last he accepted my request and in turn followed me. 
It then dawned on me that because I'm not a big poster of endless photos and stories, that my last post was of me on my wedding anniversary, pregnant. <laughs> Jeez, panic. Immediately, I feared he would think I was still married and perhaps trying to pursue an affair. So a little too eagerly, I tried to set out my stall early doors. We exchanged a few messages, but it was disjointed. We never seemed to be online at the same time. And so my desperation to make my intentions clear that I was interested in him grew with each message. Uh, John had a very old photograph of himself on his profile. He was young and goofy looking, a huge contrast from the beautiful man he is today. God, I shriek every time I think about this, but in my pursuit to be seen as humorous and flattering, I decided to compare him to a beautiful swan. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, he was polite, but the conversation was very endy, and, and so this story gets worse. I was watching a lot of TikTok videos at the time uh, that played the same song over an embarrassing video. So I decided to make my own, um, to acknowledge that it was clearly a clumsy attempt to flirt with a guy that I barely knew um, and to make fun of myself and my efforts um, at living in the moment. So I created the video with a soundtrack and I used the text to refer to the hot guy from the gym and the beautiful swan. I sent him the video, um, and only to him, because I wasn't quite brave enough for a full public share. <laughs> so I sent it to him, and waited, and waited. <laughs> Saw that he had seen it, and waited. If I thought the swan remark was awkward, well, this was a whole new level. I tried to be playful, make fun of myself, and acknowledge the situation of my failed flirting to be met with silence my expectation and hope to be seen as bold and carefree and funny was in reality um, met with silence, presumably failure. John probably ended up thinking I was a bit odd and we've never spoken or acknowledged my video. It's like it just didn't even happen. And we still see each other all the time and don't even talk about it. <laughs> Thanks for laughing, by the way, this is, this is great. <laughs> so my next dating attempt was to go online. Uh, when I was last single, there was a real stigma attached to online dating. It was like the modern, but it's now the modern day equivalent that everybody's doing. It's 2021 now. Um, everyone's online. My expectations are there to be lots of matches and weekly coffee dates to feel good and flattered by the matches and seemingly endless possibilities. The reality, however, isn't. My first date was with a man just a few years older than me. We met for coffee uh, during, the coffee uh, during the COVID restrictions. He was wearing a hat and surgical mask, and whenever I met him in the hotel foyer for coffee, I didn't even know who he was. We sat down at the table, and he removed his mask and his hat, and I instantly knew at that moment that I didn't fancy this man. In fact, I felt duped and misled by his profile pictures. The reality was quite different to what I expected. But this has become a theme of online dating. People present their best selves, the image that they want to portray. The reality of online dating is that it is tiresome. It's not exciting dates every week. The reality is it's matching and never speaking. It's speaking to people using fake photographs. 
speaking to men pretending to be in the country. One man using someone else's photographs pretended he was in his kitchen in Belfast with American plug sockets in the background. (laughs) (laughs) And when I challenged him, um, he fronted it out and uh, actually became very aggressive with me. Uh, The reality is self-worth going through the floor when you aren't meeting anyone. The reality is becoming obsessed with looking at what is out there and for validation to feel good about yourself. It's almost game-like, and I think it's created a world where people are constantly in a state of thinking something is better suited just a few clicks away, chasing the next thing. The reality of online dating is that it's actually quite boring and not that fun at all. But then, isn't that life? Life has its highs and its lows. Life is not Instagram. Although my life plan was not this, to be starting over, or should I say, going in a different direction, I have learned that time passes, things change, and I'm potentially just one swipe away from great new things. Deborah, thank you so much. What a wonderfully uplifting ending. You told that story brilliantly. Deborah later said she was delving into the podcast archive and alternately laughing and crying out on her walks, which is great to hear. And 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but we'd be really grateful if you could help us keep it going, the events and the podcast with a donation via Patreon or PayPal. There are links at the website, 10by9.com, but we also know that we're all being squeezed right now And so if it's not possible, relax. The best way to support us is to sit back and keep listening. On to our third story now, and it's our third first-timer. Here's Tom McGuire. Which one are you? What? Three amp joined in. Aye, right enough. Which one are you? Crockett or Tubbs? I'd known that going out with them wearing a white t-shirt under a sky blue linen jacket was going to get me a bit of slagging, but this was a bit odd. It was a Saturday night at the end of one of those rare enough summer evenings when Belfast had sweltered in the heat during the day and was stewing in its own sweat at night. We were standing outside the Duke of York, the two brothers and me, Golden Balls the eldest, three amp the youngest, me in the middle. Three middle-aged men in a cobblestone entry, filling up with other middle-aged men, middle-aged women, Hindus and stagnites and lost tourists looking for the mythical crack, the world and its wife or somebody else's wife. (laughs) Getting ready earlier, I'd anticipated a bit of banter at my expense, something like, that is some jacket. Designer, no doubt. One of those French numbers, I... Looks like St. Vincent de Paul to me. That sort of thing. But going with Miami Vice, I wasn't even wearing espadrilles. Not that they would have been out of place in this heat. Jeez, you'd never think Belfast could be like this. People sitting out, eating out, drinking out. It's positively continental. And I knew my cue. It was Golden Balls' turn to get a touch. Like Barcelona. Your stag weekend and three-amp volleys it back to me. Which wife were you getting married to that time? Boom, boom, Basil Brush had nothing on us. We passed the slobbering back and forth between us, running through familiar themes in well-drilled routines, bonds that kept us from 
getting too many notions about ourselves. It had become a bit of an annual ritual to mark my birthday, the three boys out on town, drinking pints, watching the world go by and talking shite. A far cry from the bad old days when you had to watch what you said and who you said it to, but you still talked shite. We'd never been big drinkers and we still weren't, so after a couple of pints, everybody was already starting to look a wee bit hazy. I have to say, the good people of Belfast looked even better through beer specs. Two pints on and it's my turn to squeeze my way inside to the bar, prizing myself in between a big lad from Bangor and a bridesmaid from Brum. I caught a glimpse of my reflection juking back at me between the optics in the mirror behind the barman. Hey, not too bad. Not too bad at all. <laughs> You've not lost it, kid. As if I knew what it was, and if I did, what to do with it. So... It wasn't at that stage, you know, where you're enchanting the bounters with your witty repartee and then you're smiling winningly at strangers and then it's your song on the sound system and you're up and you're throwing shapes and everybody's gone, please God, don't let him ever watch Strictly again. No, no, I wasn't like that. I just weaved my way back outside, clutch, clutching three pints of stout and plastic glasses, feeling good and looking good, smiling quietly to myself. This was my best life, and I loved it. So when they'd started on the jacket, that was great. And then, here, don't look round, but I think you've touched this from 3Amp. What? He said, don't look round, you clamp it. Golden ball scalps the back of my head for emphasis. What were they at now? Wiping the spilled beer froth with my hand on the back of 3Amp's shirt, I suck in my belly, pull back my shoulders and straighten up. It's vanity, not lust. I manoeuvre myself so I can just see what they're on about. Without my glasses, it's a struggle, but I can just about make out two women and a bloke staring at us from on up the entry. I shrug it off with affected nonchalance. Yeah, yeah, probably somebody I taught. I am not taking any bait from these two at this stage. It was probably their ma's you taught, Ventures Golden Balls, or a wee mistake coming back to find her daddy, goes three amp. Sure, no chance of that. He's been neutered this long while. Yeah, yeah, snip, snip. Ha, ha, they erupt in laughter. Shortly afterwards, I have to go to the loo, and as chance has it, I have to walk past the group who've been checking us out. So between the nonchalance, the straight back and holding in the belly, I'm doing a bad impression of John Wayne in True Grit. But as I get closer, I can see that they're too young to have ever watched it. As I go to go past them, one of them touches me in the elbow and she says, Excuse me? Uh, yeah, can I help you? Smile. Oh, Jesus, not that smile. You look like you've trapped wind shit. Okay. She plows on, undeterred by my facial contortions. We were just wondering where you were on the television. Oh, right. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, I was on a couple of current affairs programs on BBC Scotland back when I was a student. Oh, and it was an extra on Taggart. You know Taggart? The Glasgow Cups? Mark McManus? It was really big back... Yeah, it was really big back in the day. All right. She'd already lost interest before I'd finished speaking. My words, or maybe it was my voice, didn't match whatever picture she'd had in her head. I was like a badly dubbed version of her expectation. I didn't even get to explain that after two days hanging around location, the only part of me that had survived the edit was my left shoulder. 
walking down the stairs past Haggard's sidekick. Like, no face, no words, but my left shoulder. Thanks, we thought you read the news. She and her two companions turned away from me. I was dismissed. Deflated and desperate for a wee, it's, it's an age thing, I went off to the loo. It was a bit of a bummer to find out I wasn't who she thought she'd seen, that the reality of me in person hadn't lived up to her dream. Talk about raining on your parade. I mulled over the conundrum as I waited for a space at the urinal. Read the news? It couldn't be Trevor MacDonald, I'm too light-skinned. And it couldn't be Hugh Edwards, I'm too dark-skinned and I'm not Welsh. Oh, I know your man. What's he called? George. Jo George. George. George Alagai off the BBC. That'll be it. But he's old. He's at least ten years older than me. Doesn't he have cancer? I told the brothers what had happened when I got back down to them. And of course they looked them up on their phones so they could take the piss. You do look a bit like him. Different ears though. Aye, he doesn't fly earlingus. Good looking lad, mind you. Pause for comic effect. For an owl boy. Cue raucous laughter at my expense. More ha, bloody ha. My sense of humour bypass was starting to make the West Link look like a country lane. But I got over myself. Later. Much later. Early Sunday morning, it's hangover meets insomnia. Another age thing. Words and images are jangling in my head like a child's kaleidoscope every time I shift in the bed. I wasn't a BBC newsreader. And it definitely didn't sound like one, and it definitely didn't look like one in the state of me. But eventually, the, the picture settled. Seeing myself the way someone else had seen me was interesting. It dawned on me that what they'd seen wasn't really anything like me, like the sum of me, like my experience, my reality. I had my upbringing, my children, my partner, my career, my stories. Aye, my stories. Aye, so many stories. And it's three months later, and I'm at a training day at work, and we have to introduce ourselves to a partner who we're meeting for the first time by telling them something they wouldn't know about us from our job title. And it has to be true. He starts off by setting the bar really high. A, a, a jazz pianist? Wow. <laughs> Impressive. A, and you played in a band? In public? Did you get... Oh, oh, you did get paid for it? Right. Nice. Nice. I've nothing of that level to offer. I play guitar badly, and I haven't a note in my head. I was the only wee lad in P3 that Mr. Keenan told to mime when we were practicing our hymns for First Communion. And then I'm speaking the words before I'm even conscious of what I'm saying. I tell stories. Let me tell you about the one, the one about the day I got mistaken for a BBC newsreader. I'd love to know which BBC newsreader they had in mind, Tom. We may never know. Thanks so much for that wonderful, warm story. And I look forward to a pint at the Duke of York if I ever get out of this isolation. And that is it for this podcast. We love to hear from you, so keep in touch with us on social media, all the usual places. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com or via our website, which is 10by9.com. 
Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes and tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It is the best way to get noticed. Thanks to our wonderful Black Box audience, but the biggest thanks goes to Ian, Deborah and Tom. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. For now though, bye-bye.